This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. I'm Anissa. In this episode, we bring you the second half of our conversation with Dr. Jasmine Ghani, Senior Lecturer in International Relations at the University of St. Andrews. If you missed part one, in which Jasmine recounts her school life and the immediate aftermath of 9-11 in the UK, be sure to go back and listen. In part two, she tells us about why she chose academia as a career, her work studying the horrifying abuses of extraordinary rendition, and the pricelessness of good mentors. We also hash out the merits of the terms Islamophobia versus anti-Muslim racism, and the worrying implications of trying to expand the definition of terrorism, even with good intentions. Lastly, and more hopefully, she describes her vital work with young Muslim women who face the double burden of being seen as a victim and an oppressor at once. New episodes of Muslim in Plain Sight come out on Mondays, every other week. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate to us, just click the link in the description. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or share your favorite episodes on social media. Please also tell your family and friends about the show. And now, settle in for a great conversation about how and why we make space for the discourse of justice. So given all of this that we've just talked about, why did you decide to go into academia after all? That's a great question. So I did, uh, after my master's, I did um, some work for Gareth Pierce. What? So what did you do your master's in? Oh, it was um, theory and history of international relations. Mm-hmm. That's when I was sort of combining history with the international relations and migrating into this field. Mm-hmm. Still very much consider myself as a historian in IR, but after the master's, I was working as a, a legal researcher for Gareth Pierce, who is a human rights lawyer, who was, I didn't really interact with her. I just had to do the work that she was going to use in court. But she's incredible. She's an incredible woman. There are people like that who they just dedicate their life to fighting for justice and especially for causes that are not popular mm. right? and that actually goes against the grain in terms of what popular opinion is. So she was representing those who had been detained. So I mentioned before that people in the community, Muslim communities who are being detained under these newly created terror laws, you had your own ones in the States. Um, So we had this particular one, which is the 2003 Extradition Act, which has basically allowed people to be detained at the request of the United States, so in Britain, to be detained, based on whatever spurious evidence or suspicion that they had, but they were not required. This is a new law, because previously any extradition, they had to provide evidence. What was the reason for their suspicion? Why was why is this request being made? They didn't actually have to provide that. So people were allowed to be detained in the United Kingdom after this treaty was passed, but the United Kingdom did not was not able to reciprocate and ask for people from the United States to be sent here on extradition on the same basis. So it's a completely one-sided treaty. Yeah. And also, if you don't have the evidence in front of you, how 
are your lawyers supposed to contest it in court? You can't. You don't even know why you've been detained and what you're being charged for. It's a horrific, unjust, oppressive act that was just fast-tracked through Parliament. And while at the same time we had the secret evidence, you know, law in the books in the U.S. that was used pretty much exclusively against Arabs and Muslims, Mm. where they didn't have to tell you what you were being charged for, and they didn't have to tell you what the evidence against you was, so-called evidence, um, because it was classified according to them. And so many people were put in jail because of that for years. Right. So all of these laws actually across the Atlantic were sort of feeding into each other and propping Mm. each other up to produce this deep systemic injustice. And I recognize as well that So using the law, right? So the law is supposed to be an arm of justice, but actually manipulating it and using it so that you can further injustice had already existed before this, and especially, especially against the black community. But seeing this in in such a blatant form, a lot of people were, were being detained, a lot of people who had been quite prominent in community organizing as well, which had huge impact in organizing community work at a grassroots level. And I remember I was working on a particular project that looked at extraordinary rendition. So there are three things that these people who were being detained were at risk of. One was being sent to a military court in the United States, which meant they didn't have access to lawyers. And there's all sorts of oppressive stringent provisions that apply to those who tried in a military court and if for example they were charged and uh, sent to prison they'd be in solitary confinement there was also the risk of being sent to Guantanamo Bay Mm -hmm. and then there was the risk of being renditioned so extraordinary rendition was where you were basically kidnapped blindfolded shackled put on a uncharted flight sent to what was called the black site anywhere. So there are notorious black sites that we know of in Bagram in Afghanistan, yes. but also in Morocco, also in Syria. These are some of the ones that we know of, but there are so many dotted around. And black sites basically going into a black hole. There's just there's no legal jurisdiction of what's happening in these places, and they're basically dungeons for torture. The whole point is, is that no one's supposed to know. So that you you make it so full of bureaucracy and middle people that someone like Jack Straw, for example, who was the uh, foreign secretary at the time, can claim innocence to what was happening because he's deliberately kept in the dark. Mm. He's not supposed to know what's happening because then he's cleared and he he doesn't face um, any sort of future allegations and can't be charged with anything, with complicity in torture. So I was on that particular portfolio and just having to read all these affidavits of those who did manage to have access to lawyers and just recounting the torture they're going through. And it was, I mean, it was really, it's horrific. I mean, just reading page after page after page of this on a daily basis, the torture they're going through. And it was obviously because it's a legal document. It was being written down, transcribed in the most banal of ways. So you're reading the most awful things being done to people, yet it's being put in this legalistic language. And I think there's something about that combination that actually made it even more awful. And I would just have to routinely have to get up from my desk and just go to the washroom and just cry because it was overwhelming uh, reading uh, these stories, these narratives of people who had no voice. 
or they had a voice, but they had no way of, of getting it out there. And this is a time when, you know, The Guardian, for example, was doing this amazing investigative work where they actually able to trace these uncharted flights that were landing in Heathrow to refuel. God. With these people on board before they were being flown off to some black site somewhere. But the government claimed innocence that they didn't know anything about this. So anyway, it's just sort of compiling all of these. It's like just the blatant arrogance and shamelessness yeah. of, you know, like of committing these kind of horrifying acts and just thinking like, just knowing that nobody is going to hold you accountable. Exactly. And- totally shameless. No accountability at all. And these people were still in government at the time. right? And the Labour government won another election. <laughs> It was. It felt really helpless as well. So in a way, there are these really brilliant individuals who are trying to stand up for justice, but the whole system seemed to be so um, weighted against mm. it. And I remember when I was doing this work, first of all, and anyone that does that kind of work, it's hard work. And it, those reports that I was compiling, so 300-page reports, and they would have been um, in the appendices of the main report that was being used in court because there was just so much wow. material that they're trying to gather. And I remember actually attending um, some of the cases in court, and she was brilliant, Gareth Piss. But I realised that there was a limit, right? Because this was still within a system that was weighed against these people. She was trying to pick out, or whichever whichever lawyers are working on these issues, are trying to pick out sort of minutiae, these loopholes that the government had deliberately tried to close so that you couldn't bring these issues to court. And that's where there's a really interesting paradox emerged at this time, right? For anybody who believes in transparency and believes in democracy, then the House of Lords is supposed to be this place of innocent, unelected chamber that is an anathema to democratic principles. But at the time, because the House of Commons was so dominated by the Labour Party and the pointless Conservative Party opposition, they were just able to pass these laws quite rapidly. And then obviously it has to go to the House of Lords. And it was actually the the Lords that would block some of these uh, attempts by especially uh, things like extending the period of detention from 14 days to 28 days, detention without any evidence, yeah. without having a lawyer. And so it was a really weird situation where the peers were actually acting as the obstacle against some of these clear, egregious uh, attempts to overturn the legal process. Uh, but I realised it was it was very limited and I was producing these reports, but there was these very deep, deep structural, long-term historical factors that were playing into this, right? ideological and very much deeply rooted in not just the legal system, but politics and society broadly, and not really being able to talk about it, because that wasn't my job. I was supposed to write these reports about that particular issue at hand, and that was it. So you weren't really meant to question or probe deeper. And so there was a particular case that I came across that was quite awful, which was a a Syrian man who was a Canadian national as well. And he was renditioned. Yes, I remember because I was living in Canada at the time, Uh how this was a huge story. Right. So Mahe Arar was the name of this man. And it was allowed to happen because of this collusion between the United States and Syria. And of course, these are two states that officially they had no diplomatic relations. And Syria 
was hostile to the United States because of its support for Israel. And yet they were able to collaborate when it came to intelligence sharing and to make this man disappear, uh, render him to a black site. And so that was the trigger for me to submit a PhD application proposal. And what was really interesting is the response from so many of those that, you know, I sent them a proposal and inquired, would you be interested in supervising this? The response was, um, some of them were, because some academics are rude, some of them were polite, but they would respond with, but states are hypocritical. So where's the puzzle? What are you investigating here? It was essentially a so what, mm. right? And it was wow. really alarming because I thought just because, you know, we recognize states are hypocritical, does that mean we don't scrutinize? Does that mean we don't try to hold people or states or organizations to account? Does that mean that we don't have responsibility just to at least expose the truth or to at least, even as an individual responsibility, to make it clear that, you know, I don't agree with this. Yeah. Um, I mean, when, when Musa al-Islam was sent to Fir'aun, Fir'aun was never going to agree. Fir'aun <laughs> was never going to yeah. say, you know what, I agree with you. That's a really convincing case. Fine, I'm going to stop oppressing the, the, the children of Israel. It's just... <laughs> That doesn't mean that it's, it's pointless, right, to yeah. question and interrogate these things. But that was a response of so many of the academics. And so I thought, oh, right, well, this seems like a non-starter. So you kind of realize, like, what kind of things they value as subjects of study and which ones they're not willing to give time to. Yeah, and the idea of really um, valorizing uh, cynicism. I wouldn't even say realism, cynicism. Mm. Right? That to imagine a different way of politics, a moral or ethical politics, a principled stance, like this doesn't exist in foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And so why would you even bother bringing this issue to this field? Mm -hmm. So that was me, that was the underpinning the, the questions that we're asking. So I remember thinking, well, I'm just going to submit anyway, <laughs> see what happens. And then when I did get the letter accepting me onto the PhD proposal, I was so shocked seeing, you know, you'd be working with Frederick Halliday. Oh. You know, I don't know if he was just this tower, he was this, a giant of an academic in Middle East studies and also in uh, IR theory and just everybody knew Fred Halliday. And the thing is, wow. is that, you know, I've talked about some of the difficulties, right, going through university and there are lots of difficulties and we haven't really spoken about them being in academia and especially being from any kind of a minority group but I will say this that I couldn't have asked for a better supervisor than uh, Fred Halliday he was such an extraordinary wonderful human and kind and compassionate mentor a brilliant intellectual as well very honest, he would tell you very frankly, in a kind way, but very frankly, if something wasn't working, if something needed changing, and there was just no judgmentalism at all. Um, so he was was brilliant. So there was not really a sense of this is something that I can explore. Um, so I kind of had to make the argument that I made, which focused on the anti-colonialism of Syria's Arab nationalism, was my roundabout way of being able to draw on these themes of empire and, and race and colonialism while having to situate it within the 
accepted theories that we were supposed to work with. But my supervisor was very, like, he offered the freedom for me to work what I wanted to, but you still socialize within the entire department, right? You're presenting to departments and everything like that. So he actually passed away um, during my PhD. And the person who took over was equally supportive and brilliant, which is Fowler's Judges. So I, I say that because when we talk about experiences, difficulties in academia, there are also shining lights mm. right, that have been there throughout my experience. Um, there are a couple of really wonderful people in the department at the time. And I had a really brilliant cohort. And I think that really helped. So the group of other PhD students, all of us doing very, very different things, but generous. We were critical of each other's work, but in a very honest way. And I, I still have a lot of respect for them all. But it was, I think, you know, the, and you see, you mentioned it, right? The, the weight, which I don't think we fully realize, and you can't constantly think about it because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do anything. Um, but the weight of, of that difference, knowing, and how we've, had, we've already talked about hearing the kind of views that exist in society about Muslims um, or just general racist views that we just, absorb right through osmosis we yeah become, we just know it's there even if so, someone hasn't said it to your face sometimes they have all the stuff that you read in the media but um that weight of uh you kind of have to start at zero with everyone right you start at zero yeah you well no you're not starting at zero you're speaking of amazing mentors and i think that's the only way that you can go through academia um without hating it is if you have these mentors and i had a really amazing mentor who um, her name is Rima Burns McGowan. She left academia. She's now uh, elected uh, in Toronto. Oh, so she left academia. She did because mm. she felt like she could make more difference in, in politics. politics. Well, mm. yeah, but she actually um, she actually accepted Islam while I was her student oh, during my undergrad. But she used to say she was one of my like core professors in the diaspora and transnational studies program um, at the University of Toronto, and she used to talk about like. And forgive me, I don't remember the person who came up, like originated this theory, but she used to reference this person who talked about like an invisible backpack. Oh, yeah. So you're carrying this invisible backpack of all the assumptions that, you know, people have about you. And some people's Mm. backpack is a lot fuller and heavier than others. And you just have to carry that. And so when you first meet someone, it's with all the weight of those unspoken, invisible things. Yeah. Right. So you actually start at minus rather than at zero. True. And if, if if it's zero, at least you have you have more of a, a chance of um, starting without those right. preconceptions. But everybody doesn't start at the same spot. They don't. Yeah. And I think there's Robbie Shillian mentioned this once in a podcast about how the black community, the way in which they've dealt with all of the stigma, the actual racism and oppression over centuries, is just with this constant generosity mm. uh, not in a way of where you don't defend yourself and you allow yourself to be trodden all over but despite all that you you still give and despite that you still are able to believe in the goodness of people and uh, I think that theme of generosity is really important and resonates because I think it's a theme that we spoke about before that you have to remain open to people some people they may have never have met a person who's different, could be any background, in this case, a Muslim. And you are literally the first time that they're physically encountering something that they have only heard negative things about, in many cases. Mm. Uh, so people deserve a chance, right? We, we give them 
like regularly alhamdulillah and i think that's a beautiful thing i think it's actually i'm very proud of that that we are still able to do that and actually that's good for our souls as well we know islamically we know that if you give allah will always increase you and that giving might be a sort of a spiritual one or it's more of from within it's not mm. physical kind of a, a giving or material form you'll get that back again like in terms of how you feel spiritually in terms of how you feel mentally so that approach i think is always better but i think also at the same time we're human and especially if you're a younger person right and you're still navigating life that i remember hearing one of your other interviews was it um dr monoma sawud yes so obviously she was speaking about the us context is uh, a brilliant interview so well done to both of you and to her and for sharing and uh, she mentioned that you know every single time she would encounter so she meets someone even subconsciously learning to read the tiniest of facial expressions and and subtle aspects of body language i don't think we choose to do it i think that's how the human brain works right when mm-hmm. you are in that survival mode as i mentioned before um it's so it's a form of self preservation right? right so we don't choose to do it it's actually a superpower <laughs> right and so i mean i'm saying this to a couple of colleagues in a joking way that sometimes if you want to figure out who's a decent person who's not like you put a racialized person in the mix and they can be the litmus test so how how people are respond to them and you know we say that you can't base your views of someone on you know the first encounter um you have to look beyond those first impressions actually I think there's something about the first encounter that's really important. Yes, there's more truth in it, right? Yeah. There's so much truth in it that they didn't filter and there's something very deep and innate about who what that person thinks about you but also just who they are. So even if somebody doesn't know much about Muslims or has heard negative things and I've met people like that but actually their demeanor and the way that they have also have to adopt some kind of a generosity to give you a chance. I, I can recognize that. Mm. Um, in comparison to there is sort of this deep suspicion or a sense of a superiority towards you or almost like a sneering attitude mm. towards you. Yeah. And then somebody who's just closed the door to any possibility of connecting with you on a human level because they no longer consider you worthy of that kind of consideration that they would give anybody else. Yeah. And you can pick these things up in in very subtle and small ways, which I can't explain how, but I think all of us and any person who's racialized will know what I mean. And Mm. if you're not, then you will not know what we're talking about. Sorry. Yeah. So speaking about racialization, one of the things that we wanted to talk to you is because so much of your work deals with like language and knowledge production, there's certain words, you know, and I I remember like there was a period where we would Muslims would talk about Islamophobia. Nobody else would use that word. Now, mm-hmm. you know, you see the word Islamophobia being used by like media outlets and mm-hmm. government organizations and academic departments. And then there are also some people who say we don't want to use the word Islamophobia. We want to use anti-Muslim racism. And I just wonder if you have a sense of are these two terms used differently? Are there benefits to either one of them? Do you have a preference of which one is better? Or like, can you point out some of the problems with either one of these terms? Yeah, it's a good question. I, for a long time, I still have misgivings about the term Islamophobia. Yeah, I don't like that one. Because a literal translation of that is this 
um, sort of irrational fear of Islam. It's like arachnophobia, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So there's a sort of bi- just a biological or a psychological reaction that you can't explain. Mm-hmm. And actually, for a lot of people that are, let's use the word Islamophobic, it's not irrational in the sense that they assume some people will actually read the Quran mm-hmm. and they'll have, uh, they'll be able to quote verses. And they have this arsenal of those particular yeah. verses, right? You know, it's yeah. like they have them on a little notepad that yeah. they keep. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> just, to, just to catch you out. Yeah, it's, yeah. we've all yeah. been through it. We've all been through it. And um, yeah, so they, they, it's not, in the sense, it's not completely coming from the unknown. They can't even explain it. And that's sometimes used when the word, this is racism if you know if someone's being islamophobic and we say this is racism and a lot of those people respond saying it's not because this is against the faith right and there's legitimate criticisms we're making about the faith and it's got nothing to do with their race and we're right. actually criticizing the ideas so people like for example shali abdur where their so-called satire was based on there were uh, racial tropes there as well but actually they were they were targeting actual stigmas about and, and falsehoods that are shared about Islam in terms of actual beliefs. So um, when we say Islamophobia, it doesn't really capture that. It's quite easy for someone to say, I'm not, I'm not being Islamophobic. I know perfectly well why I have a problem with these people. And I can tell you in precise detail. So you don't see that as the same thing as sort of ideological opposition to Islam? Because I tend to think of Islamophobia as, like, if I were to differentiate, I would use Islamophobia to describe, I mean, I don't like the word, but it's there and people use it. Exactly. So in my mind, I kind of separate that out into, like, it would make sense to use this word if we're talking about people with an ideological disagreement or opposition to Islam. But Mm. I do tend to prefer anti-Muslim racism because... That's usually what we're talking about when we are talking about, you know, differential treatment of Muslims. That's interesting. I feel like the word is used in the context of anti-Muslim racism here in the U.S. Like Mm -hmm. when people use it, that's what they're talking about. Even people who are outside of our community. While I also can definitely acknowledge the problems with the term that you're pointing out, Jasmine, like I think the people who say and I think that you would probably agree with me. The people who say that Islamophobia is only an ideological term are being extremely disingenuous yes, absolutely. and dishonest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that for many of the people who use that term pretty comfortably, they are assuming that the racism part is kind of included. But the problem is when, you, when you're all using the same term, but you don't have the same understanding mm-hmm. of it, then that makes yeah. things really muddy. Yeah, exactly. And I think now, even though I have misgivings about the term, the misgivings are because well, we have to name this is something mm, right and it's been so easy for those who are islamophobes to bat it away by saying this is not what mm. i am this is not what i am and then it's very it becomes what they're doing is very slippery right to be able to nail it down mm. and to then provide a critique so nevertheless now i think it's an issue of semantics right where there's relative consensus and some of that consensus has come from the Muslim community, whether we all agree with it or not. And sometimes just think, well, for the purpose of being able to support those that are fighting against it and using that term, I am not going to raise issues with Mm. it. Is there a difference between Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism? Yeah, I think as both of you have said, on, on one level, there's a because Muslims are often in a minority context, will be coming from a heritage that is very easy to racialize, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're 
black or you're Asian or you're Arab or even Eastern European or any other background if I've missed any. Like they are, they're not white, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not European or the derivatives of, of being European. Or even if you are white, the moment you put a hijab on your head, you're no longer recognized yeah. as white. You sort of forfeit your whiteness. Yeah. But that's exactly it. That's where you can tell where there's something else happening here, right? So that's if it's, I think all of us here have heritage that's going back ancestors who are not white and not European, right? So even if we were not Muslim, if we weren't wearing hijab, then there'd be, we would probably have encountered different forms of racism. And often we're still racialized. We, exactly. Like, we'll still even also get people that. who are not wearing hijab, for example, are still racialized That's as Muslims. It. So no, like, this, is not, this is my point. This is my point, is that I think let's keep the Muslim thing to one side for a second. And there would be... There's anyway, still a racism almost, element. There'd be right. a racism that would be applied. Yes, because yes. it's happening to Sikhs and it's happening to Hindus and it's happening to black people who are Christians. Mm-hmm. Right? So it, 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 it's not... Like that would happen anyway. Mm. But the points that you've raised are where you have somebody who's actually white, as you know, their you know, grandparents fought in the Second World War and everything about them is of a sort of a European culture, but they have become Muslim and they put the hijab on, for example, so they visibly are also Muslim. They get racialized yeah. mm-hmm. because of their Muslimness. And that's when you realize that there's another layer of a racism that's associated with the faith and not just with the fact that a lot of Muslims mm. in minority contexts come from different parts of the world. And that's actually shown through um, this intellectual effort that took place yes. during the Enlightenment to actually uh, assign Muslims with their own race. Oh. So there was the actual biological term that was produced, the Homo Islamicus. What? Assign category for Muslims. No way! I have never heard about this. Yeah, Homo Islamicus, which is that you know we there are these different races who are obviously inferior to the white race Mm -hmm. that had this sort of slower trajectory of evolution and had all the the inferiority in terms of the size of their brain. Wow! I I mean, I did I knew that they did that with like black people, but I did not realize they did it for Muslims. Wow! So Muslims have their own category, and it was. It would overlap or intersect with these other racial categorizations. It's bizarre that you would attempt to do that with the knowledge that Muslims do come in all colors and races and, you know, even historically. But even scientific racism is actually <laughs> right. based in real science. So, you mm. know. That's true. That's true. There's no rationale mm. here. So what role would you say that 9-11 played in the racialization of Muslim identity? Like, was that something that was already there and like well on the way to being as fully formed as it, as it is now? Or did 9-11 sort of do something that changed the trajectory of Muslim racialization or speed it up? It definitely did something to it. but. It wasn't point zero. As I mentioned before, I was already very conscious and aware of the racialization of, of Muslims before 9-11. For example, the close association between Islam and terrorism, yes, it's really intensified by 9-11 to the extent that when there is some kind of um, an attack, 
that takes place, let's say, when the, the Britain First member killed Joe Cox around the time of the Brexit vote. For people who don't know, Joe Cox was an MP who was murdered. That's right, brutally murdered. Right. It was in, well, it would have been 2016, yeah, just before the Brexit vote. Right. And um, and Britain First is a right-wing extremist group. And, yeah, and it fulfilled, in every way, it fulfilled uh, the definition of terrorism, which is an act of violence for political ends. But it, it, he wasn't called a terrorist. Mm-hmm. So you hear sometimes on the news, like, well, it's been confirmed that this is not a terrorist attack. And you mean, well, this is basically what you're saying. Don't worry, everyone. It wasn't a Muslim. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It was a white guy. Was, yeah, Don't worry. People died, but it wasn't a Muslim who did it. You know what I find... And I don't know if this is a mark of how successfully we've been conditioned. It's that I actually find it really weird when I see the word terrorist applied when they're not like Muslim. Like I remember at some point, some years back, they actually did, like the media made a concerted effort to use the word terrorist for a particular incident, which I can't recall right now, but I remember that it wasn't a Muslim. It was just some random white guy and they were like, he's a terrorist. and. I actually was a little bit dismayed because at this point, I expect the word terrorist to only be used with Muslims. So my reaction to seeing terrorist in the headline was, oh, it was Muslims again. And so then course, like, yeah. you go in and you read the article and you realize that actually wasn't a Muslim. However, because I'm primed for so it. have been so conditioned. Yeah. Because you've been primed for it. When you're reading that headline, you're automatically making that assumption anyway. You might not yeah, you might not read the article. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter if it wasn't a Muslim. Yeah, it's done the job. It's done. It's, exactly. Like you've already done the job now, whether or not it's a Muslim. Yeah, it's continued to feed that repertoire. Yeah. And there's a debate now, right? So, for example, when we had here in the US the 2017 Charlottesville white supremacist rally in which one person was killed, we've had so many acts of terror and violence since then. We had the Christchurch massacre that, you know, the person who just gunned down 50 people in one go in a Friday prayer in New Zealand. Here we had the January 6th um, people who just invaded the Capitol and started beating people up and breaking the Congress building. And like, there has been this debate that there's been a certain segment of people who say, who are saying, we've known for years that the largest terrorist threat to the United States is actually these right-wing extremist uh, you know, nationalist groups. Why don't we use the same language to describe them that we've been using against terrorists who claim to do it because of Islam or you know, people who are brown or whatever? And then there's another group of people who are like, Actually, we don't need to expand the usage of this really terrible term that is used to justify the kind of civil rights violations well, exactly. that we are trying to stop. And yeah. I would definitely put myself in that category. Yeah. yeah, I definitely agree with that. And because the term terrorism, even if it was in more recent times, has been applied to Muslims, it's just a way of saying these people, not only are their acts beyond the law, but how we respond to it is also beyond the law. Yes, exactly. So it's it's a way of creating a particular stigma about a particular group of people and to put them beyond the boundaries of what's legally normal. Mm, and how you're required to treat them. Exactly. So that is, if that's extended to other people, then why would we be in support of that? Mm. It's such a pointless term, mm-hmm. partly because it's so associated with just say Muslim. Right? Why are you saying terrorists is say Muslim? <laughs> right. But also because the use of it is completely political. It serves no other function yeah. than to trigger a particular type of fear 
in the people. And almost always it's used to be able to justify a certain type of draconian measures from the state. Yep. We actually, before we did this interview, you and I talked a little bit about doing this interview and you mentioned an occasion where Gordon Brown, Mm. um, during his brief premiership, had a very specific choice of words. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this was in 2007. So it's shortly after he took over from Tony Blair. So Tony Blair had the privilege and the luxury of being able to just step down. (laughs) And Gordon Brown finally steps into the shoes of being Prime Minister. And there was a in, in, in any other context, it would have been defined as an attempted terrorist attack on Glasgow Airport. So it was some individuals who rammed their car into the, the entrance. They were Muslims. And obviously when it broke in the news, and I remember thinking, here we go, right, just waiting for the onslaught, the media onslaught, and then all of us having to deal with the reaction from the public, which we sort of just carried that right, in different, multiple ways. And always when these things would happen, especially at the peak of the war on terror, in a morbid way, just make sure that you'd listen to the, the first speech that would be given. So by Tony Blair, in this case, Gordon Brown, to know how they're going to frame it. And well, we knew how Tony Blair framed all of these incidents and they'd, they'd be used as fodder, right, to feed this this machine of the war on terror and ratchet it up and justify their policies. So here I was waiting to hear how Gordon Brown would frame it. And it was interesting that he, he did not use the word, this is a terrorist attack. He used the word, my memory serves me correctly, and I remember because it really stood out for me, so I'm pretty sure this is what happened. He called it a criminal act, mm. which... A terrorist act is a criminal act anyway, um, yeah. but it was a very, for me, it felt like a very deliberate choice of words. So by this stage, um, because of what was happening in Iraq and the, the war on terror was was not popular and there was more criticism of it, um, it had come to define Tony Blair's premiership that this was, I think, a way of Gordon Brown demonstrating that it was going to be different. Like he was his own person. Now, he was complicit in the Iraq war. I'm not going to sit here saying, well, wasn't he a wonderful prime minister? And he carries uh, the responsibility of, of that Labour government. But I do remember that particular the power of discourse, right? Because it just him not using the word terrorist, even though it was Muslims who had done this, it allowed a lot me to just feel a bit of relief because he didn't use that word it calmed some of the reaction down as well Mm. at this point i think we should probably segue into gentler topics like the hopeful things rather than the dark things although i think that is a good stepping stone into hopefulness although i mean what followed gordon brown is certainly not anything i would describe as hopeful but (laughs) (laughs) It all went downhill. Right. However, we're still here and we're still doing what we have to do. And one of the things I really want to hear about is, as a senior lecturer now, you have a pastoral care role, and also you do other youth work, which you've been doing for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and why it's important in a general way and why it's personally important to you? That's a really big question. And thank you for asking it. Yeah, the youth work is something that it evolved quite organically from the community organising that I was doing anyway. Um, when I guess I was younger, the youth, and yeah, the, yeah <laughs> the age of age of the some of the people that you know that I'm now supporting and, and trying to help with this work. And um, 
it was, you know, something I had mentioned earlier about the the activism, community work, the ability to exist, right? And at the grassroots level in Muslim communities after 9-11, it really took a hit. Mm-hmm. And it probably was the same in, in the United States, I'm sure. But it was, I was lucky in the sense that I was in university. So I was able to channel mm-hmm. that energy and, and wanting to contribute and, and serve in that context. Mm-hmm. And I think also being at university allowed was a bit of a... Um, a shield. Yes. So of course there's a mm. surveillance and scrutiny on Muslims as there was everywhere. And goodness knows what kind of impact does that have, right? <laughs> Us as a community. But um I think at university, even though that was the case, it's supposed to be a time when student societies are active, it's expected. So to that extent, you could merge in with the general activism that's expected from all other societies and different people on campus in a way that would really stand out if it was within your local community. So we were still doing work, community organising, but it was really low key. It was much more so building personal relationships and not really able to do anything in an overt way because what emerge and developed into prevent where every single thing if you were to so much as have any kind of islamic identity to your work or you mentioned islam wow immediately you'd bring that attention to you as well what does this mean are you an extremist Uh, we have a future guest that's going to talk to us in detail about prevent yeah yeah so the yeah, so the the fact that things really were stifled, and I think that had a really big impact on my generation, but also those uh, immediately younger and those going through school, because mm. then suddenly all of that work, really important youth work, just dried up. Mm. Um, the people that were leading it, just out of fear or from threats, actually stopped engaging that work. Some of them was obviously their people that plucked out and detained, but it was the culture of surveillance just really um, it killed off any of that activism so I think while camp those campus years really took a lot of my energy I still retained that connection in terms of community organizing and when I when I left uni I just wanted to and it wasn't just me alone by the way there was a really brilliant group of friends that uh, I worked with and Khadija was was there as well in and out on the scene she was <laughs> um, of course she was <laughs> she ran off to Egypt <laughs> to learn Arabic I think you should make that absolutely clear before somebody decides to label that oh, as God, something yeah. suspicious <laughs> but yeah it was it was a case of wanting to give back especially for Muslim girls mm. because there was a, a double pronged attack right? it was everything going on in terms of Muslims are terrorists and the violent side of you know what Islam was supposed to be but also for muslim women saddled with the constant allegation that you know muslim women are oppressed mm, and right in choosing to be a muslim yeah. as a woman that this is something deeply anti-feminist and that you're willfully allowing yourself to be subjugated and you had to contend with that whole you know both sides of the narrative right like you were both threatening and threatened at the same time you were yeah. you were the you to be saved yeah you need, need to, to be, be saved. saved, but people need to be saved from you. Yeah. Right. So you become a victim and an oppressor at the same time. Exactly. exactly. So Muslim women, I think there was a particular challenge and burden. Right? Mm. And can you imagine if you're a young person and you're um, navigating your identity and you're faced with all of this? 
and you're being asked, and this was happening, mm. teachers were challenging their students in class classrooms, asking yeah. them these deep questions and singling them out. There's this statistic that I saw recently that like in the US, they did a study where over 70% of Muslim children say that they were bullied in school wow. in regards to their Muslim faith. And a lot of like a huge percentage of that was by their teachers. Yeah. And that's just horrifying. Yeah. So this is the responsibility Going back to that question of, you know, what, how do I see my role? That responsibility as a teacher, as a mentor, and the impact that you can have, either positive or negative, on people who are so, they're vulnerable. They are so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. That's not me saying that in a patronizing way. They're capable of doing incredible things and powerful in their own way. And often, you know, they will be the ones who can lead the change, but they need space to grow. And they need space to know who they are in a way that is safe and in a way that is not constantly under attack. And Muslim youth were never allowed that. Mm. They were never allowed that. And so just really wanting to give younger people um, a space where they could just exist. And some of that youth work is about helping them just to feel confident in their identity, but it's also about um, knowledge building. It takes a sort of a bit of the form of like a seminary where we will talk about and um, reflect on Quran and Islamic knowledge in a way that feels applicable and relevant, or um, they might have questions about it, but also... You do hikes. We did hikes. And we also did like talked about racism. Mm -hmm. We also talked about anti-blackness within in various communities, we'd talk about other aspects of justice and equality. Um, we talked about you know, mental health issues. So not just Islamic issues, but all the whole variety of issues that can affect youth. But sometimes they all end up being connected, right? Yeah. So just really feeling it was important to give back. Also, it was a real way of, as with academic work, it's very long term, right? So you mm. will take you see years sometimes see the fruition of your ideas your research and this work it was really tangible um often the the challenges that you faced in academia was really wonderful about then the youth work uh, or any community work was sometimes people would say so what do you do and i'd mention i'd be doing a phd here on this topic because they asked and if i remember clearly one time um, one of the girls said, I've never heard of that. I have no idea what that is. I said, that's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> it's just to be in a space where nobody cares about your qualifications and nobody cares about the the, yeah. the, the academic merit. Kids keep you humble, that's for sure. They keep you humble and they also allow you to be or the part of you that isn't an academic. It's course that my work is a big part of my life but it was never going to, I didn't want it to be and it never has been the entirety of who I am it's a part of it but there's so many other aspects to who I am and so being in those spaces allowed me to be that fuller person it was a big part of that as well as like other interests and, and I haven't mentioned family at all mm. in this interview but they have been such a huge part of keeping me grounded but also being that space of security and love and and shelter and always from day one just championing my work and and myself and and how powerful that was um so yeah these different spaces and the community was a part of that and I think in terms of being uh, in a position to mentor others or to teach others and this isn't just for the youth work but also as a teacher right in Arabic there's this word murabbi Mm. so murabbi 
is the name that you give to a mentor. And the word comes or it's connected to the root word, which is Rab. And Rab is, means Lord. So there is a, a sacred connection in fulfilling the role of, of a teacher or as a mentor. It's a sacred aspect to that connection between you and those that you're supposed to be caring for. And so that just a real sense of responsibility, a real sense of having respect for what you're supposed to offer those that are in your care, a respect for their boundaries and your boundaries, but also knowing that you're someone that they can turn to as they navigate some of those challenges. It's um, it's really fulfilling. And this past week, I was able to give these lectures on post-colonialism to our students. And it's always that time of year. It's a very difficult time of the semester where all the marking and all the deadlines mm. are tired as well. And then yeah. this comes along this particular week. And that's when you get feedback. You get feedback from students of all backgrounds. It's really powerful to see students who are white of European, American um, backgrounds who feel they can be open about what they've learned and the journey that they've gone on and expressing that humility and that commitment to changing things is is incredible. Um, but it's really special when you hear from students from minority backgrounds who will say, this is the first time I've been able to feel international relations is for me or I do belong in academia or that my history and my heritage is reflected in this discipline and it, this has motivated me to be able to actually enjoy my subject. In some cases they will express the fact that they can relate to me right so they'll say seeing a woman of color or, or seeing a Muslim woman it makes me realize that I belong here as well. So there's that feedback mm. and realizing that for all of the challenges and difficulties that you can have this powerful impact on even one person's life. And it might be in a very small way, but just to lift some of the burden that they might be feeling and to make them feel that they have solidarity and that they're not alone. Yeah, It's, it's really wonderful to be in a position to help others not go through that. And what I would say is that, you know, when... 9-11 happened and I was saying that there was, you know, you didn't really have that critique. And I think that was what was really stifling and suffocating and, and isolating. But in a weird way, with everything that's happened in the past 20 years, if we're going to look at things more positively, is that everybody's aware of the critiques now. Everybody is challenging. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people are challenging the systems of power and oppression. Even though some of the, if we look at the current government, because of that, some of the corruption and the injustices are blatant because there's almost no point in hiding it because people were still able to read into that, even if it was in subtle forms. Nevertheless, it's, I think it's easier to find solidarity across strata of minority or marginalized communities, which is very heartening and very hopeful. And so, for example, even in those lectures that I mentioned, when I first started giving them, students were always quite polite. Right? I was warned that people were going to walk out because apparently that had happened in other lectures on feminism, for example, before I arrived. Um, you'll get some backlash. And on the whole, I think students, I am actually quite um, impressed. It was clear they, they found it very difficult. Some of them said it. They said, I found it really hard, but it was necessary. But over the years, actually, students are waiting for this message. A lot of them will have actually encountered this discourse, the anti-colonial, anti-racist discourse, a discourse of justice, really. It doesn't have to have any other label. So that's, I think, really encouraging. Mm. 
And putting it on the podium where the professor's speaking puts a whole other, you know, because when you're getting it, even if you know it, even if you're talking to your peers about it, even if you're talking to your family or your community about it, hearing it from the person who's teaching you in this historically very white institution that has been sort of upholding all of these oppressive sort of because, you know, that's what most academic, I'm not making a judgment about yours, but I'm just saying most of these academic institutions are part of this. Uh, yeah. yeah. But to hear that from your professor, and for me, I had a really powerful experience like that as well. Like the professor I mentioned to you that I had during undergrad, you know, you're sitting in this institution where you feel, you know, that inertia of the status quo of like the last 200 years or however many years that this school has been open. And then you have somebody standing at the front of the class telling you, like you said, a discourse of justice that you've never heard from that person before. Mm. It's really powerful. Yeah. Uh, and and what's and going back to sort of the community work as well, so outside of the university, is how another thing that's really valuable about that work is realizing where a lot of these ideas come from has always been from the bottom up, actually. So the challenges to oppression and justice, of course, academia and these elite institutions, actually they play an important role in connecting that discourse to with certain types of agency, some forms of change that they are capable of, of facilitating that would perhaps be harder from a grassroots level. But in terms of where that uh, the momentum is often coming from below. And so a lot of the stuff that now is, is easier to talk about in the classroom, in those safe spaces at the community level, they were being discussed long ago. And um, that's the case with not just Muslim communities other, I'm sure, Jewish communities have historically been oppressed and marginalised would be able to share perhaps a similar story. Of course, uh, when I say the black community, I'm not saying that the Muslim community is separate from the black community because so many of the, for example, the girls that attend the activities that we have, I think at least a half of them are black so and they're Muslim. But generally in the black community, these types of discussions they're having I think some of the, the narrative, for example, about class as well, right, and how it intersects with race, I mean, that mm. was you, people who perhaps had no access to an elite education were saying the things that we are now hearing in academic circles, right, about gentrification is a form of colonialism uh, and their displacement and their marginalization in their own communities felt like it was another extension of imperialism to them. And they were saying this perhaps in not such fancy language, but I remember his years ago, right, this type of discourse, and people just implicitly knew because it was yeah. a lived experience. And it's a little bit like, um, I think there's a really um, fantastic work that's being done in critical terrorism studies that's bringing to light some of the issues to do with discourse and structural injustices um, that we've been talking about. But even if you didn't read a book because we lived through it, Right, we could have told mm. you some of these things years ago. It's a bit of like having an out-of-body experience when you're then reading <laughs> journal articles about these things, thinking, yeah, I didn't realize that there needs to be a theory behind this, but this is true. Mm. I, I can validate this. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that we can end on a really positive note because we can't always, right? We try, but it doesn't always work. But mm. this is hopeful. And also, before we do close out completely, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the mentors that we had as well in that time, without whom we wouldn't have been able to do what we did. Absolutely. And they've sort of, well, not faded into the background, but they Passed have... on the torch. Right, exactly. Yeah. But they've always been there for us. And 
they continue to be there for us. And I think looking at the work that you do, I feel like we are growing ourselves to fill the positions that they used to fill and show the, and maybe that's the process of growing up is passing that torch on, paying forward the support that you received. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that, that nothing would have been possible without those older generations. Mm. Some of them just a few years older than us. And then those who are decades older than us. Mm. And some of the stories that I'm sure that we've all used to hear from the much elder generations and subhanAllah, you know, many of them have passed away now. And the legacy that they left, the, the hardships that they went through, um, just the foundations that they laid, the unbelievable racism that they experienced, yeah. um, the obstacles, but also really important solidarities that existed then. Mm-hmm. So my father used to tell us about this, the solidarities and the, the close connections between the Muslim community and the Bengali community and the Jewish community, right? And because obviously Muslims can eat kosher food, that often when there were no there's no yeah. way to get halal food. They would the yeah. Jewish bakeries and and those that would put, be able to provide kosher food would invite the Muslims there to be able to buy yeah. from them. My grandmother still remembers when she came with my grandfather in nineteen. I want to say 1963, they came, uh, he was doing his PhD at the University of Toronto and they used to get their meat at the Jewish market. And she still remembers that. Yeah. And it it was very, some there was lots of difficult stories that those generations told us, but also very beautiful stories. Um, So completely, anything that we do is thanks to, in large part, Alhamdulillah, obviously first and foremost to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of the positives like we, we can talk about the how harrowing that whole period was but what we haven't really talked about is how it strengthens your faith and how it strengthens your relationship with god mm-hmm. and it strengthens your sense yeah. of who you are and in a way that that comes perhaps sooner than than later right in a very murky the 20s is a difficult time i think mm-hmm. when people are figuring themselves out yeah but i definitely look back to that era as it really consolidated for me a sense of who I was and who I wanted to be and what my principles were and how I wanted to to commit myself in the years ahead but yeah definitely those that came before always always to acknowledge them so thank you for reminding us thank you Jasmine for joining us it's been a great evening and where can people find you on the internet (laughs) (laughs) would you like to be found (laughs) I, I I think it's important. Well, it's important to be findable. I have been on a long and quite peaceful sabbatical from social media for a while, but unfortunately, I think because of work, I'm going to have to rejoin. You might find me on Twitter at some point in the future. I am lurking on LinkedIn, which always seems slightly more, uh, let's say, less frenetic pace. Right? Um, you also have a website, though, don't you? I do have a website. It's just my name. <laughs> so there's nothing imaginative. Okay. It's just com. Okay, we'll, we'll link to that. <laughs> okay, perfect. And I would like to highlight that on her on her website, she uh, makes her journal articles available, which is something that yeah, like, access, yeah, I really that. appreciate that because once you leave or unless you are in an academic space as a student or like a faculty member, the barrier to that knowledge has been a source of continuous frustration to me. Mm-hmm. And it's really valuable that you're doing that. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Since we're acknowledging people's efforts, thank you, both of you, for doing this. It's really important. When Khadija first told me about it, 
and she had to persuade me and a big part of me saying yes is I feel very honored but it, she, it took some persuading <laughs> <laughs> but because it was Khadija I said yes because it's not an easy thing to talk about and I think a lot of us probably found that we we don't explore the depth of, of the aftermath of, of 9-11 and thankfully we didn't even talk about 7-7 because that was on another level and particularly raw so but it's really important work that you're doing and it's I, th- I think Khadija was mentioning that there is a, a generation or so, certainly a particular years. So there's a, there's, a, there's a category of people who within certain years where we probably haven't had our stories told. And we um, it's not about our stories. It's about the collective yes. uh, environment mm-hmm. and the situation, which isn't just about us. It's not just for Muslims, but it's it's really reflective of society this, the politics at the time, but how that shaped things that's come after. So this is such an important process of archiving um, that's really necessary. So as hard as it was to share some of that stuff, but I think it's really, really fantastic work. Thank you. Jazakallah for being part of it. Yeah, we really appreciate mm-hmm. you giving your time. And and I know these are, as you said, difficult to talk about. And I, you know, we appreciate you being so open with us and sharing all of your stories. And if you would like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter. Khadija, where they where can they find us on Twitter? They can find us at MIPSPOD, M-I-P-S-P-O-D. And you can also email us and we are still soliciting your, you know, either 9-11 stories or your kind of reflections on the many things that have happened after that and since then or any of the things that we've talked about on the podcast, you can email us at musliminplainsight at gmail.com. And if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, you can either do so through whichever app you get your podcasts on, or you can go to musliminplainsight.com and subscribe there. Yes. And we appreciate everyone who's been sharing the podcast. I feel like this has been, at least in my observation from the people I've talked to, people are like texting this to their friends Mm -hmm. and sharing it through word of mouth. And I think it's part of the nature of the fact that it's like so emotional for us um and so it's really an honor to kind of be filling that space and we appreciate your support in that way and also for people who have donated we really really appreciate that as well and that's it (laughs) and that's that's it yeah thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you for having me okay until next time inshallah yeah assalamualaikum assalamualaikum wa alaikum salam